I would like to welcome you to the second session of this seminar on Britain and Germany in Europe, What Prospects. I am uh, Christine Dalby, Deputy Head of the Political Sector and uh, the European Commission's Office in London. We usually explain our aim in life as that of promoting understanding between Brussels and the UK. In other words, we try to explain what comes out of Brussels to the UK and what is happening in the UK to Brussels, perhaps more of a challenge these days. <laughs> we don't have a large staff, but we do have a very busy press, outreach and political sector that engage with stakeholders and the public through a wide array of different events, conferences, press releases and publications. Our website bears witness to our efforts, so if you Google the EC representation in the UK, you will find the latest European Commission press releases and a wealth of other information about the EU. We are very pleased to have contributed to this seminar, first to encourage discussion of European issues at this critical moment in Britain's relationship with the European Union and second to pay tribute to the memory of Adam von Trott and his courage and dedication to secure peace and democracy in Europe. In this second session of the seminar, we will examine questions from the point of view of Germany. What are its interests and aims in the EU? How do Germans view the role of Britain? Is Germany set to play an increasingly dominant role in European policymaking? Or is Germany, as many recent analysts have claimed, however, the reluctant hegemon? Let me now turn to our two distinguished speakers for this session. First, I would like to introduce and welcome Dr. Rudolf Adam, Minister and Chargé d'Affaires at the German Embassy in London as our main speaker for this session. Dr. Adam has been, had a distinguished career as a German diplomat. After joining the German Foreign Service, he served in Singapore, Beijing and Moscow, and held posts in both Bonn and Berlin as a member of the planning staff, speechwriter for President von Weizsäcker, director for arms control and disarmament. He further served as European correspondent and held positions in the Federal Intelligence Service and the Federal College for Security Studies. Dr. Adams studied at Tübingen University Oxford and München. Since 2011, he has been deputy head of mission in London, where he's currently in charge of the embassy. Second, I would like to welcome our respondent, Professor Paul Betts, who is professor of modern European history at the University of Oxford. Professor Paul Betts was educated at Haverford College, Pennsylvania, and Chicago University and has taught at the University of North Carolina and at Sussex. He came to Oxford University last year as Professor of Modern European History and is a Fellow of St. Anthony's College. He's the author of many books and articles on 20th century German history, of which the most recent was Within World's Private Life in the German Democratic Republic, published by Oxford University Press. He has been joint editor of German history and is currently chair of the German History Society. We have about one hour and 15 minutes. 
so that means about 25 minutes for the principal speaker and about 10 minutes for the respondent, and then that leaves us about half an hour for a very good discussion. Thank you very much. Adam, please. Well, thank you for that. Those words are welcome. And uh, let me thank, let me start by three words of thanks. First, it's nice to be back. Nostalgia overpowers one when one goes through all these rooms where I studied about 40 years ago myself. And then a word of thanks to the Adam von Trock Memorial Appeal for keeping alive the memory of a German who, in my view, embodies the very best not only of German but European traditions, a man who desperately tried to strive for peace at a time when all the signals were directing the other way, and a man who finally gave his life for this, for his ideals. And um, I'm all the more grateful that his memory is kept alive in this way in a country where some small-sized newspapers try to cast the image of my country as if they had been all admirers and ardent followers of Hitler, not all were Nazis. And let me thirdly thank uh, you for the phrasing of the seminar, Britain and Germany and Europe, what prospects? When I read it, I said, I'm so glad it doesn't read Germany and Europe and Britain without, what a prospect. <laughs> anyway, I think in order to understand how Germans and my government feel about the European Union, you have to go back in history and exactly to that phase in history which is connected with Adam von Trotzsozols, which is the First World War and the Second World War. I think my generation, and I would even say probably the next generation, is imbued with the memories of this utter catastrophe in our history. So when I grew up, the first and paramount political interest of Germany was, of course, to get out of the shadow of this catastrophe, to find readmittance, as Sir Humphrey said, to the human race. And that was the reason why membership in NATO and membership in the EU was of such central importance. Because although our uppermost political aim was, of course, and had to be, the overcoming of the division of Germany, we realized very early on that to achieve that aim, we could not take a national way. We could not do it alone. We could only do it in embedded, firmly embedded in a community of European nations. And it was very clear, and I think it was one of the basic tenets of the Foreign Office, that the overcoming of the German division would only be possible through and in close co connection with overcoming the division of Europe. That is why the European dimension was so important to us. And don't forget 
1957 Messina preceded the famous German-French friendship treaty by four years. So the EU was there before the German-French le couple franco-allemand became reality. And although it may be embarrassing, but I still remember very distinctly that the British representative in Messina said, you are trying something that is impossible, it will never work, and if it works, it will be irrelevant. Of course, when I first came to this country in 1961, it, the imperial mantle had not been shed completely, and the feeling was very much the way that we read Churchill's famous Zurich speech, you get together on the continent, you get your act together, we have our own role. That was very much the, the, the sort of perception when the European community, it was not the Union, when the European community started. And the other big factor in our history is, of course, that after 1940, 1945, Germany was completely demilitarized. The first soldiers were drawn, the Bundeswehr was started again in 1957. And it was very clear from the beginning that this Bundeswehr should never be allowed to play the role that the Reichswehr had played so fatefully in the first half of that century. So if there is a certain reticence of Germany in military matters, that is the reflection of our history and that is the reflection of our experience. Because when in the first session somebody talked about the robustness of the defense posture, I would say that our experience has taught us to be very skeptical about robustness. I have a great admiration for Admiral Petrius and Lord Ashdown because I think they both have, from different points of view, come to the conclusion that there's very little you can do with military power unless you put it into a framework that goes far beyond the military sphere, a complete concept incorporating civilian cultural, legal aspects. And our experience, particularly on the Balkans, I think, has taught us that military force alone is very little likely to bring the kind of enduring, inherent stability that allows you to withdraw. K4 is still in Kosovo, and we are still in Afghanistan, and heaven knows what's going to happen next year when we draw down our fighting troops. I would say, as a diplomat, the result will probably be very mixed. So, I think it was a Frenchman who said, you can do lots of things with bayonets, but you can't sit on them. <laughs> so, 1989, 1990 really was a decisive moment in our history because we regained exactly that position that we had always wanted. We achieved national unification, and of course the biggest challenge was to get our relationship with our eastern neighbors right. We were relatively secure about our relationship with our western partners, 
But of course, particularly Poland was a tremendous challenge. And I was at that time in the planning staff and I would have not predicted that things would go so quickly, so smoothly and so well. So I think that was really a big miracle. But ever since then, since certainly since our Eastern partners joined the European Union and joined NATO, Germany's position geographically and politically has changed completely. We used to be on the brink of two military blocks, very, very heavily militarized, and if there had been a military conflict in Europe, thank heavens it never happened, we would have been right in the middle of it. Now we are in the middle of a pacified continent, and in fact, we realize that we cannot face any meaningful military threat unless some of our closest allies, friends and neighbors fears that threat first because we are confident that the prospects of military conflict within NATO members or among EU members is nil. What has been our further experience? Our further experience has been huge costs of unification. Two billion euros transferred from the west to the east, that is the equivalent of one year's gross national product of Germany. Again, the results are mixed, although I would say 80% has been well spent, but we realize that about 20% has gone awry and we start to beginning that we may have neglected the west in order to favor the east. We also have discovered that our very complicated federal equalization account, I have not found a better word for Länderfinanzausgleich, <laughs> is, is a permanent source of political friction. Because in the old days, the net contributors and net benefactors changed, and it may come as a surprise to most of you that Bavaria used to be one of the chief benefactors in the 50s. At the moment, it seems that three countries, three counties, three lender are paying, and the other 13 are receiving. So you will probably understand that Germans are a bit reticent when you come about, when you talk about uh, direct transfer union and mutualization of debts. That is something that Germans feel very skeptical about. Don't forget that there were two schools of thoughts in 1991. The one to which I belonged was very optimistic and said, oh, just combine the strength of the West German economy with the strength of the GDR economy and you have the dominant economy in the world, almost close to the United States. Well, the strength of the GDR turn, turned out to be a rather, uh, um, uh, um, well, not so realistic. And um, there was the other pessimistic school of thought that said, well, they'll drag us down and this will be a bottomless pit, this will be the German mezzogiorno, and um, this will be just terrible. Well, the outcome has been, as I said, we are relatively strong at the moment, but I've just been back to uh, Berlin in late August and I talked to a lot of people and I was surprised by the feeling of um, careful skepticism. It was basically 
fortune's wheel keeps turning. We have been the sick man of Europe 10 years ago. Don't, underest don't overestimate the strength of our momentary economic performance and don't underestimate the inherent structural weaknesses. Because if you are so dependent on exports, if China sneezes, we go down with flu. So we may be strong at the moment, but we are ex by the same token extremely vulnerable because all the dislocations in markets in India, China, Brazil, wherever you go, translate immediately into our economy. But having said that, you'll probably understand why a lot of Germans have a very strong, deep, I would almost say emotional commitment to Europe, which may be sort of the the reverse or the equivalent, the reverse equivalent to some of the very emotional prejudice that some Brits have against, or some Englishmen, I think I take David's distinction very carefully, I think it, it is very, very relevant, have against the European Union and Brussels, whatever it stands for. You also realize that the euro although nobody would really love it the way that some people love the Deutschmark, is of essential importance to us. And not, I add to say, because of our exports. I think a lot of British newspapers, if I may say that in this room, get it wrong, although that is, of course, a sacrilege when you include the Financial Times. It is not the strength of our exports that is, makes the euro so important to us, because almost 70, well, well over 70% of our exports today do not go to the Eurozone. They go to China, India, Russia, where we had increases of up to 20, 25% a year over the last four or five years. Why the Euro is so important to us and to our neighbors is because of our imports. Because as you may have noticed, you don't get products made in Germany anymore. You get products made by Mercedes, by BMW, or by Siemens. And the actual value added in Germany on our territory by Germans is increasingly small. We get increasing, our comp increasing components from Hungary, from um, the Czech Republic, from Poland. And in fact, when Germany introduced this subsidy for scrapped cars, if you scrap your old car and bought a new one, you got a grant, a government grant of up to about 5,000 euro. This was the best uh, positive influence on the business cycle in these neighboring countries because they suddenly got sucked up because the German economy, German automobiles sold very well and selling German automobiles meant selling Hungarian and Polish components. I think what happened since 2010 has brought home to most Germans the weaknesses in the design of the euro. We are trying to cobble together at the moment some stop gaps, some uh, answers that at least give us some time, but I don't think that anybody expects the structural problems of the eurozone to be solved within months, maybe not even within one or two years. But we'll certainly do our utmost to keep the Eurozone together, and may I add, in fact, 
we'll get a new member on the 1st of January because Latvia is going to join. And that is why I felt a bit uneasy about, say, well, Poland and Britain are outside the Eurozone. Poland has a commitment to join, Britain has not. So the present arrangement between 28 and 17, don't make any mistake, is going to change. It will not end up with one against 27, or 29 or 30 by that time, I'm quite sure, but it will certainly not stay at the present relationship. I certainly expect the Eurozone to go up to 22, maybe 23 members. Let me just come to the last point, the reluctant hegemon. I don't know what a hegemon is. I read ancient Greek. I know what the Greek mean, word means, but let me say we realize that Germany has a position where it is increasingly difficult to find solutions to bring the European Union forward without Germany and almost impossible against Germany. That applies also to the plans of this government in this country to push for reforms. Some people still talk about renegotiation. And I had a long argument um, um, with a cabinet member of this country. And I said it makes it all, semantically, it makes all the difference whether you talk about renegotiations or reform, because renegotiation at least in my mind, conjures up a position one against 27, whereas reform is something where we would very much like to join hands with you because there is an increasing awareness in Germany that the European institutions in their present form need not only superficial but very fundamental reform. So let us talk about that. And let us find allies. Because even if Germany and Britain agree on a number of things, we can't push through this alone. We have to find further supporters. And this again is something where I find the German political mentality is a bit different from this country. In this country, people say, look, this is what I want, and I'll get it somehow. A German would say, well, this is what I want, but can I really talk about it? And where do I find somebody who sort of supports me? We would never, never like to be isolated. Again, that is a reflection of our history. So our inbuilt reaction may also be a reaction of our geopolitical situation. After all, this country has natural borders. We never had any. And we have next to Russia the highest number of neighbors. So for us, it was always a natural instinct to say, well, this is something that we would like, but how is it going to affect the French? How is it going to affect the Dutch? How is it going to affect the Poles, the Austrians, the Swiss? Or if you take a sort of neighborhood in a larger sense, the Italians or the Swedes. I would say we are hesitant. We are skeptic. And as an old Stoic that I am myself, I would say there's a lot to be said about skepticism in politics because I have seen a lot of mistakes, fundamental mistakes and catastrophes in politics coming out of overconfidence. I've seen very few mistakes committed out of skepticism. So I would say we're not reluctant, but maybe hesitant and skeptic. And hegemon, yes, we would like to provide leadership. We have certain ideas about the way this 
show that is called the European Union should go forward. And again, I feel sometimes in a certain dilemma when I read the press in this country, because on the one hand, a lot of people say, well, Germany really should go forward and show leadership and be a hegemon. And then when we say, well, this is the way we want, ah, you say, they're the Germans again, trying to achieve through the euro what they couldn't achieve through the tanks uh, 60 years ago. And again, that is an uncomfortable position to be in. So I think we have very clear ideas, but as I said, we are skeptical and we listen very carefully and we realize the way forward cannot be achieved by doing it, going it alone. Second point, how would we see Great Britain? I listened very carefully. I think Britain has changed beyond recognition since the time when I first came to this country and certainly since the time when I read books written about this country 50 years ago and the books reflected the Britain of um, the pre-war time. The empire is gone. There is unease about the future setup of this country. And if the Scottish referendum were indeed to introduce an element of federalism into this country, well, good luck. I would say that it cannot, cannot be the wrong way. But uh, how to introduce federalism into a country that lives on the sovereignty of the monarchy and the sovereignty of the parliament is something that I find difficult to reconcile. And we had a long argument about this last week when the president of our constitutional court gave a talk in Lincoln's Inn, and I saw that a lot of British lawyers and politicians simply shuddered at the thought that Parliament could have any limitations imposed on its sovereignty. I mentioned Messina. I think we, when I grew up, the vision was very much, well, the Brits don't really like to be part of it, and anyway, they, they want a special size. You know, they don't want to fit the sort of average garments that we all wear, they want something special. And I mean, Margaret Thatcher got it, I think quite rightly to some extent, but the British rebate has always been something that is resented on the continent. At the moment, you may be aware that Britain is Germany's foremost economic partner. It has overtaken France, taken uh, exports, imports, and services together. Britain is our strongest partner. I think Germany is number two or number three for Britain. But just to give you an idea about the dimensions, because again, back in London, sometimes I hear, well, you know, in the end, we don't really need the European Union. We have the Commonwealth. Um, Britain exports to the federal county, that's Land, Nordrhein-Westfalen, four times the exports to China, India, Australia, New Zealand, taken together. So that is quite a sum. So if you talk about relative growth, of course the growth takes place in China and India, but the, relative, the absolute figures are still worlds apart. The single market is the most important aspect of the European Union to most Britons. Understandably so, it is very important to us too. But what I do not understand, and what we, I think we have to go into greater detail, is what the four freedoms mean. Because one of these freedoms is the freedom of movement. And I'm always astonished about the discussions about immigration in this country. Because 
as an academic, I think the first thing is to distinguish things and not to lump them together in one very diffuse term. And if you lump together the movement of professors and boards of directors or general, di general directors of globalized firms who work in Germany and Britain and then go on to America and come back to Britain, if you lump them together with a freedom of movement which is enshrined in the EU treaties and the poor devils whose, who sort of, whose boats capsize south of Lampedusa, I think you're absolutely adding pears and apples, not only pears and apples, you're adding rats and pears. These are completely different things. As regards EU migration, first it was the Polish plumber, now it's the, the, the people from Romania and Bulgaria, and if you push people a bit more, I think you can narrow that down to one particular uh, ethnic group. Um, I would say that as the EU has enlarged, uh, people begin to realize, not only in this country, that there may be the necessity of actually introducing distinctions again between nationals and non-nationals. In certain social services, certainly with your national health service, these are concepts which were designed way before the freedom of movement. And of course we have tremendous difficulties in making these constructions fit into a world which is so different. I'm looking forward to the debate on the referendum. I think there will be a referendum. Just this morning I listened to Sir John Major and he very vehemently said we need that referendum and his words were to drain this venom out of the political blood veins of the political life in this country. I tend to agree with him. There will be a referendum. I just wonder what the arguments will be and whether it will actually settle the thing. Because a friend of mine, you know the famous quote, you are entitled to your opinions, but you are not entitled to your facts. And I find it very, very difficult to argue with people who don't know the facts. So the first thing I would suggest is before one starts discussing the merits and disadvantages of membership, get the facts right and do not mix up the European Court of Justice with the European Court on Human Rights. By the way, a creation very much written by a British conservative in the 50s. I do find it difficult to believe that Brussels regulations stifle British industry when German industry, which is operating under the very same regulations, thrives and goes Boom. I think we have to be very careful to discuss the concept of repatriation and subsidiarity. I think this is, this is, these are two concepts where the Brits and the Germans are very close to each other. They certainly overlap these two concepts, but they are not identical, and we have to be very careful, and I think uh, academic, academic place like this university would be well advised to study the implications of what it means to repatriate and what subsidiarity means. My sort of brief answer would be repatriation only goes from the center to the periphery. Subsidiarity says, well, we have to look critically, but sometimes things, it is necessary to send things also up to the center. Well, let me just be briefly 
look f uh, in, in, in looking forward a little bit. You'll probably realize that Germany very much wants Britain to stay in the European Union. Our Chancellor has said that, our Foreign Minister has said that, and I think it is obvious that we want a country of the importance of this, of Great Britain, which is one of the largest economies in Europe, which is a nuclear power with a seat in the Security Council, which has a very strong and explicit tradition in free trade, liberalism, that is something that is very close to our German hearts as well. So we would go a great way to help you achieve a position in which you can vote yes. But, and that is the big but, there is, we would not pay any price. And if I, I, I'm not, I don't have any mandate from my government to say that, but I mean in an academic institution like this, I think I can venture my own uh, conjecture on this. And my own conjecture would be if we felt that concessions to Britain would seriously undermine the functioning of the institutions in Brussels, and if, this is the first condition, and the second condition, if we were faced with a choice between our neighbors and Britain, and these two cases, I think, we would say, well, terribly sorry, guys. We very much like you, but we have to part ways. So the best thing, of course, would be never to let a situation arise where we would be in a position like that. The second thing is, sometimes some people in Berlin feel that it's very difficult to get a constructive approach from London these days, and um, a lot of people say, well, then we simply have to bring the Poles stronger into the play. And I think that is again something that people with a London perspective don't realize, that in Berlin you have a lot of uh, options, and of course these options will be uh, exercised if you can't move ahead this way and you move that way or that way. I mean, you, I mean, if you are sailing, you know, you can reach your goal by crisscrossing. The third big challenge, and I think this is where we really have to work together creatively, we will face a multi-tier Europe. I think it is no longer a multi-speed Europe, but a multi-tier Europe. Where is the difference? A multi-speed Europe presupposes that we're all moving in the same direction, we all have the same goal, but we'll arrive there sort of successively, some for earlier, others later. I think the idea of a common goal is increasingly questionable. So some people will not even agree that this is the direction we should move further. So we realize that if Britain stays out of the euro, for the foreseeable future, and I think that is a sound assumption to make, we'll have to find arrangements which satisfy both sides, which satisfy the British side, that we are not ganging up on them, that there's not a sort of conspir cons conspirative caucus against Britain, facing Britain with a fait accompli, with a decision-making process that has already run its course, and Britain has to accept that in questions of vital importance to the Eurozone, Britain will not have a veto. 
a voice, yes, we'll listen to you, we'll, we'll take your views on board, but if it's really vital for us, we'll have to move ahead. The last point, trade and investment. I think it seems to me so obvious that if Britain were to, join, to leave the, Euro, the, the European Union, um, uh, the consequences for the British international position in trade and investment would be disastrous. A, don't take it for granted that you would be receiving access to the single market automatically. B, you would certainly not get it at better terms as the Norwegians. The Norwegians pay 80% into the EU budget of what the British average citizen pays. So for these 20% difference, do you really want to give up your seat in Brussels? Because the consequences are Oslo receives every month or every two months a long list of regulations from Brussels and says, well, look, this is what we have decided in Brussels and this is what you have to implement. Because if you want to keep exporting to the single market, you will have to follow the regulations. Otherwise, you will not, your goods will not be accepted. Do you want to accept? I mean, I would like to see that British Prime Minister who comes into the House of Commons and waves a piece of paper and says, look, these are the new instructions I just received from Brussels, you see, and you have to vote on it. And better vote yes, because otherwise our goods can no longer be exported to the European Union. And the alternative would be we've sit in, sat in Brussels and we prevented the worst for our industry. And do you really believe that the Japanese and the Koreans or the upcoming uh, threshold countries like China, India, I mean, your Prime Minister just, or your uh, uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer just visited India and, and China and asked for investment. Do you think they would invest in a country that has no access to the single market in Europe, which is, after all, in terms of purchasing power, one of the most powerful markets in the world and is likely to remain like that? I conclude on that. Um, I'm looking forward to your questions. Thank you. Very good. Thank, I'd like to, uh, first of all, thank Tony Tucker and Graham Avery for organizing this event. I, I learned a great deal um, in this morning session. Um, I'm going to keep my comments uh, very short. It's a rare privilege, I think, to have Ambassador Adam here, in a sense, field some questions. Um, and as you gather, just from the accent alone, I'm, I'm neither German nor British, uh, but North American. So I presume I was partly asked to, to speak today, that, uh, in a sense, to give a different sorts of, uh, sort of perspective. I'm also not really an EU specialist, but in a sense, I've been interested in, in German-British relations for quite a long time. And because I'm an historian by training, uh, we generally not in the future business uh, in terms of thinking about the future so much as we are preoccupied, of course, by the past. So my particular comments will in many ways inflected by a particular interest in history and how, in a sense, we've got to this particular moment. Now, uh, and I think we all share, all the speakers share a, um, a kind of common view about the perils of British exceptionalism. And I don't really have any quarrel with any things that he's actually said, so that's probably... Um, Disappointing for the uh, for the organizers in terms of not going to be a heated discussion. I'm, anyways, in agreement with uh, many things that the ambassador has just 
said, but I think having been in this country for 13, 14 years now, I'm struck by always um, a few things. One is, in a sense, in terms of the relationship between the UK and Germany, what is often characterized as a kind of story of continental drift, uh, lots of tales of divergence. And from me as a, as a foreigner, uh, it always seems to me this is a kind of narcissism of small differences. Uh, and it's certainly the way it looks to me. Um, but of course, it, especially in terms of, let's say, the British and, and German attitudes toward China, toward the US, and even toward France and its pace and scope of reform there, and the kind of shared program of neoliberalism. It doesn't look all that dissimilar, I think, from the outside. But despite that, the story of difference, of course, has framed much of this discussion uh, in recent years and even longer. Much of this, of course, has also been uh, shaped by the discussion of economics, um, this idea of an anti-Europe program, which is, if you scratch at it often in this country, certainly comes down to a kind of anti-German uh, sentiment, which I think has been very, very powerful. The, the announcement from Cameron about the EU referendum has, in a sense, heightened these tensions, it seems to me, in the last uh, few months. But it's not just one that is confined to economics. It's also one that spills, of course, into the world of politics. And some of you rem may remember back in August of this year that Germany decided to cancel what they called its Cold War spy pact with uh, Great Britain and the U.S. And in recent months, and especially uh, recent weeks, even recent days, about this kind of surveillance issue that came up, I think, in the morning session about how important that is. And that seems to belie a certain cultural difference between Germany and Great Britain, uh, given, of course, the German uh, experience uh, during the Third Reich, of course, with the Gestapo, and especially with the Stasi in East Germany, the sense in which the right to privacy uh, is an, a very, very important issue that's enshrined then in the basic law. And I think a lot of people on the continent and the U.S. have been surprised that this issue of the right to privacy has not engendered the same uh, debate and controversy and discussion in this country as it has elsewhere. So I think it also points to an important cultural difference um, between Great Britain and Germany. But for the most part, of course, history has uh, been the site for narrating these particular differences over the decades. It's been a whole stories of kind of century of antagonism, the First World War, the Second World War, and now that we're heading into the season of the commemoration of the First World War, we're going to see much more of that. And it's not surprising that um, German um, specialists in this country, especially those that, have, that come from Germany, have been much more muted in their participation on panels and uh, discussion of the First World War, this kind of feeling in which they feel they're being um, uh, subject to a whole range of uh, stereotypes and prejudices, which they feel in many ways have been, in a sense, handled by historians actually quite well, in a sense, to uh, bring back much of this has been greeted with a lot of skepticism and even indifference. So I think that, in terms of how historians have narrated those differences, has shaped this debate, and even something like the 19th century naval race, in a sense, the rivalry there is a kind of... Um, first run of the Cold War, in a sense, the Cold War before the Cold War, in a sense, it's kind of a British-German uh, uh, antagonism in the late 19th century that shaped a lot of that U.S.-Soviet military buildup in the post-45 period. All these ways, in a sense, highlighting the differences and the divergences between uh, German and British history. Another issue, of course, about those differences is the issue of language, and anybody has been in this country for a while, the deplorable decline in interest in German language at the high school level that's really plummeted in the last few years seems to again point to an important divergence between uh, Germany and the U.S., or sorry, Germany and the U.K. 
Another point is the issue of trafficking of people. There are some 300,000 uh, Germans living in Britain, uh, far fewer Brits that actually live uh, in Germany. Many people are happy to take their kind of weekends there, kind of easy jet tourists uh, to Germany. Uh, but still, the numbers seem to be in one direction. There are four to five times more students uh, from Germany that study in Britain as opposed to vice versa. And that seems to be, again, a story of one-way traffic in terms of these cultural differences. Now, what I've just said is probably actually quite well known to you, not hugely original or even that interesting, but I'd like to at least, uh, in relationship to that story, give you an alternative history of cultural cooperation. I think in many ways this is in the spirit of von Trott himself, and I think you can reread uh, German-British uh, uh, history in the last few centuries actually quite differently. We can begin with two commemorations. We've been following the German press in 2013, this year, of course, the 200th anniversary of the Battle of Leipzig, which has been uh, celebrated in the last uh, few weeks in terms of the uh, efforts to uh, commemorate the Prussian-English um, military uh, confederation to defeat uh, Napoleonic forces. Uh, and some people even gone, gone so far as to say that the, the Prussians were the great victors of the Battle of Waterloo, in that the Prussians obviously played a very important role, and a number of uh, Prussian soldiers and mercenaries then also played a key role in the British army. So there have been a range of revisionist historians to say to reassert the importance of the Prussian role in the uh, great moment of Waterloo. 2014, we're going to have a lot of commemorations then about the creation of the House of Hanover, of course, that ties then the royal houses together, um, setting in train uh, important relations between uh, Germany uh, the German lands and, uh, and Britain, of course, over the, sense of, over the course of several centuries. So that particular kind of royal uh, uh, complicity is actually quite important in thinking about the relationship between these two countries. Fourthly, probably less well-known in terms of colonial Britain, the number of Hessian mercenaries, for example, that played a role in the British army against the American uh, revolutionary soldiers, and in a sense, again, tying uh, the countries together in terms of uh, military uh, alliance. Um, also, of course, the importance of uh, romanticism, the, the influence that, um, that Schiller had on, 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 on Coleridge, for example, and the kind of shared romantic sentiment of the early 19th century. Of course, also the export of radicalism with uh, Marx, Engels, and Marxism. It's impossible to imagine the birth of the British Labour Party without, in a sense, the export of uh, German uh, uh, radicals then to uh, these shores. In the 1920s is also characterized a period of, of warming relations, the Locarno treaties, for example, and the 1950s with the European Union, NATO, uh, in terms of uh, strengthening relations between uh, the Federal Republic of Germany and the UK. And even when we think about the communist half of Cold War Germany, East Germany had its warmest relationship to the West with the UK. So all these are ways of, in a sense, understanding that cooperation. I don't mean to be kind of school marmish in terms of walking you through some of these points. It's in a sense the larger point is that if you think the broader sweep of, um, of British-German relations, it's actually only the first half of the 20th century, which is the story of great antagonism. If you actually put this in a much larger sweep, it's been a, much, it's been a story of co cultural cooperation. I think that needs to be kept in mind because the media in this country has a tendency to kind of naturalize this antagonism as in a sense somehow inscribed in the DNA. Of, uh, of this particular country, when in fact it's a, a fairly limited historical period, a very important one. It's not to say it doesn't have an important prehistory and an important post-history after 1945, as he has suggested. 
So with that in mind, I mean, it's just a matter of uh, saying a few comments, and I think that came up in the first session, which is the role of France in this kind of triangular relationship. I think that was suggested early on, the role of the Balkans, and even possibly things like environmentalism, environmentalism Britain and, and Germany have taken the lead in terms of how they, in a sense, start to map this out as another place of cultural conflict. Um, all of this is an effort to try to imagine and create a European public sphere, the idea of creating European newspapers, uh, media outlets, possibly even film as a way of creating a stronger sense of European identity that doesn't fall necessarily along national lines. I think that's been a project then from the 1950s that's really run into a range of problems that it seems to me more urgent than ever as a way of, in a sense, uh, trying to emphasize what Europeans have in common as opposed to continually accentuating those particular differences. Um, I'm going to go ahead and just stop here and make just one final point. We talked quite a bit about in the morning about British exceptionalism, and you kind of wonder, given the particular problems with the European project in the last few years, if there's not also an equivalent German exceptionalism. And by this I mean that the, the enthusiasm for the European project, for the most part, seems to have been confined to fewer and fewer countries. And you can't help but wonder if, in a sense, that might be the most important German export of all, in a sense, exporting that particular enthusiasm for the European project. And that seems to have, uh, for whatever reason, faded. It's no longer seen as a shared project, but one in which the Germans have a particular interest in driving forward this issue. I still think that um, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of selling this particular project uh, to the British public, but just want to kind of keep those issues in mind. At that point, I'll go ahead and stop, and we can turn it over to uh, the questions. Okay, thank you.